Well, good morning, good morning. Welcome to La Jolla Community Church. How is everybody doing this morning? Awesome. If you have your bulletins, go ahead and take those out. If you look, flip to the inside cover, you'll see our prayer connection card. We're a church that's rooted in prayer. We're a church that believes we are better together. We're the body of Christ. We're called to be his body. So we would love to connect with you. We would love to pray for you. If you want to fill that out, there's no prayer request too big. There's none too small. Or if you just want to connect with us, go ahead and fill that out. And then after the sermon... The ushers will come by, and you can tear that out and place that into the offering basket. Well, just a few quick announcements. If you have a, a child or a teen, we have some camps coming up. We have our junior high camp, which will be up at Forest Home. It's taking place the 16th to 21st of June. The registration is open if you want to put your down payment down. Or if you know a child that may be interested or someone in your neighborhood, a grandchild, a cousin, this is the time to engage it because there's open spots. It's going to be a fantastic opportunity. And at the same time, just a little bit different dates, the 16th through the 22nd, our high schoolers will be going all the way up to Hume Lake to have a fantastic camp up there. You can go online and you can make that deposit as well. It's going to be a little bit less. It's $500. But this is a great opportunity. These camps are great opportunities for kids just to, to hear about Jesus, to be with other kids, to, to realize it's not uncool to be the Christian kid and just have that great opportunity so they can walk away with this fortified or just starting this relationship with him. Also, we have some volunteer needs. So I'm going to call them opportunities, but they're really needs. Our children's ministry is fantastic. Rihanna and Ryan, they're doing great things every week, but they need help. They need help with setup and teardown. If you have the gift of taking something from point A to point B, 
or putting things in drawers, we need you. How many people love football? Or have ever watched football? If you can carry a football, you can hold the baby. Believe me, I played football and I could carry a football and hold the baby. I have many of them at home. But you have that gift. Even if you're just sitting there for a little while holding that baby, praying for it, praying for his parent, it's a great opportunity. If you have the gift of clicking PowerPoint or buying snacks and delivering them or just standing there looking pretty, we can use you in the junior high and high school ministry. There's a lot of these low-impact things that are taking up time that we can just come around Ryan and Rihanna and just fill those spots. So if you're interested in doing any of that or if you're just questioning, hey, what gift do I have? Or I could do this or I could offer this. Come have the conversation with us. I'll be right outside after the service. Well, like I said earlier, we're a church that's rooted in prayer. I would like to invite Mark up to pray for us this morning. Thank you. I'm so glad that you're all here and it's a privilege to pray with you this morning. Uh, please join me in quieting our hearts before the Lord. Oh, thank you, Lord Jesus, for gathering us together this morning as your church. You are bigger and greater than we can imagine. A global God whose church reaches the far corners of the world where people are worshiping you. And at the same time, your love reaches the finest invisible details of each of our hearts. You know our hopes, our dreams, our hurts that are often unseen and unspoken. How amazing you are. And your creativity is reflected in the generations and diversities of people you have created. And as La Jolla Community Church, we celebrate being part of your church. We're humbled to be your hands and feet and counted a privilege to be a reflection of the sacrificial love of Jesus to our neighbors. You are the only hope of the world and the light of the universe. And Lord, we come to you in confession as your people and your church we often act out of fear instead of love. We confess that we often choose to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and attempt to play the role of judge on all those around us, and we lose sight of the eternal value in all those you have lovingly created. We choose to pull the splinter out of each other's eyes instead of the log in our own, and our judgments are self-serving. We try to get life out of critiquing those around us instead of from your sacrificial love. Forgive us, Lord. Only you are God. Only you are holy. You are righteous and loving as a judge, and you are full of grace and church. Truth. And it is you that truly sees the hearts and stories of each person that we cannot see. We confess this along with whatever sins you might have lovingly surfaced and made clear to us and ask that you make fresh how deep and wide and long your love is for each one of us and all those around us. Let your church reflect the abiding love of Jesus. Thank you that you see the unsurpassing surpassing worth in each of us, in each of our neighbors and those around the world. Your love reflected in Jesus' death on the cross, hallelujah. And thank you for calling us to pray together in unity as a church to depend on you more and more than ever, being held in your loving hands so that all fear will fade away. We commit to not rely on our own strengths and savvy as a church, but on the leading and resourcing of your Holy Spirit. As you prayed in the upper room to the disciples the night before you were betrayed, may we as your church be unified 
so that the world will know that Jesus was sent for them. We lift up these prayers to you in the holy name of Jesus. Amen. series in uh, uh, this post-Easter season uh, talking about what it means to be rooted in Christ. Because of Easter, nothing is the same. Uh, nothing is the same. Uh, we can't look back on life before Easter having seen Easter. And so uh, <clears throat> today we're talking about the fact that the church matters. It matters to God and it should matter to us. And so let me ask you this question. What comes to mind when you hear the word church? What comes to mind when you hear the word church? If you're familiar with church, maybe lots of things come to mind. If you've never been a part of a church, you go, I don't know. I'm waiting to find out. I'm here. I'll let you know after the service is over. But what comes to your mind when you hear the word church? And then <clears throat> what's been your experience of church? What has been your experience of church? Uh, do you now start thinking about childhood experiences? My experience of church was that it was a mysterious place uh, that um, I didn't really understand, and it was sort of boring, and I sat there as a little kid uh, trying to figure it out and just wondering uh, when we got to go home. Um, part of my experience of church was my parents would argue about it. Should we go to the Catholic or the Protestant church? <clears throat> and the way they resolved that was just not going to church. And so that was sort of an interesting uh, part of my experience, too. What's been your experience of church? Has it been the most wonderful thing you've ever experienced? Or have you thought, wow, you know, I thought my family was complicated. <clears throat> when I was a brand new believer, uh, uh, this uh, Young Life leader invited some of us to go up to Palo Alto to this church that was in an old Safeway store. Um, and it was called Peninsula Bible Church and it was led by some fantastic uh, pastors and uh, it's filled with a bunch of Stanford students and a bunch of people, Silicon Valley people, and uh, a bunch of uh, just a really wonderful cross-section of people. It was sort of like a, a hippie movement sort of a thing. So uh, this body life service, Sunday night service, was, was my first exposure really as a new believer to church, and it was unbelievably fantastic. Uh, there was great music. Uh, they would get up and uh, uh, teach out of the Bible. That was a new thing to me, and they were all fantastic uh, at that. They just walked through a, a passage, and then they'd have somebody run around this old Safeway store with a mic and say, uh, okay, so what's God doing in your life? And people would talk about what God was doing in their life, and it was the most energizing, inspiring, interesting thing I'd ever seen before. And I thought, wow, that's what church is supposed to be. <clears throat> and the young life leader said, well, not exactly, uh, because... This isn't how most churches are, but I brought you here because I think this is what church is supposed to be. Grounded in God's word, obviously filled with his Holy Spirit, uh, people using their gifts to uh, uh, serve the community around them, et cetera, et cetera. So it was intellectually compelling, it was spiritually uplifting, et cetera. And so um, I realized I needed to get a, a, a church close to home, and so the same young life leader said, well, you might want to come to my church with me. So he went to this little tiny Presbyterian church. And I tell you what, I thought, man, I, this is like my family, in a good way and, and not so good way. It was a very complicated place, and I thought, wow, churches can be very complicated. I didn't really know anything about church, so I, as this long-haired kid with hiking boots on and jeans and a t-shirt and my new Bible, I just walked up every Sunday and sat in the front row and opened my Bible, because <clears throat> after all, I had been to Peninsula Bible Church all summer, so I knew, I knew the drill, <clears throat> and I was the only one there. 
and and, I, and in fact, while well, I looked around and, and I finally asked him, I said, is it okay if I sit up? Am I sitting in, am I not supposed to be sitting up here because nobody else is sitting up front? And the pastor said, no, 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 that's really good. Keep doing that. <clears throat> and I thought, okay. And it took me a while to figure out that a lot of these people had grown up in the church and it wasn't that interesting to them. It wasn't that compelling to them. But the people I found who were most alive were the people who were on the university staff, on the Young Life staff. And for whatever reason, they, were, they just landed in this little church because there were some very dynamic followers of Jesus there uh, who said, let's just sit in here long enough and see what God would do with us. Uh, and so it was a very interesting contrast for me, my experience at church. And then um, having met some pastors, I realized I would never want to be one because the, the world they live in is such a crazy world. And then I, God called me to be one. And I confirmed that it is an, indeed a crazy world. And yet, in, that middle, in the middle of that crazy world, I've noticed that an experience of church really comes down to one thing. Because the Lord always shows up being the Lord. It comes down to that one thing, which would be, do we show up willing to be the Lord's people? And so, uh, the third, third question is this. How would you explain church to someone who's never been part of one? <clears throat> and, you, and you're saying to them, here's why you should come to my church. I don't know. I, I would bring a lot of kids. I brought a lot of people. My senior year of high school and then my college years to this little church and eventually a lot of a lot of filled with college people But it was really challenging at first because they'd say why would I go to that funky little church? It's kind of boring. The people don't look like they're really too happy to see us uh, Versus wow, I could take anybody to Peninsula Bible Church all my friends would think that's cool Even if they weren't believers would think that was pretty neat. That's what churches. I, I didn't know that uh, so how would you explain church to someone who's never been part of one or if they've been part of one they left it for some very good reasons never to return, and you're trying to give them uh, an opportunity and a reason to come back for a second time. What would you say to them? Uh, here's one answer, uh, <clears throat> one thing I would say. Uh, I would say the church answers a need common to every generation. If somebody were to say, Steve, you're a Christian, right? Yeah, I bet you're a pastor, aren't you? Yes, I am. Well, why would I go to church? I would say because the church answers a need common to every generation. And they would say, that's kind of a big, uh, gutsy thing to say. How do you know? And I'd say, the word of God confirms it for me. Oh, you're going to give me a Bible verse? No, I'm going to give you a description of life. And tell me if it resonates with you. And so here we go. Out of Ecclesiastes 1, uh, 2 to 11. <clears throat> this is written at the high point of Israel's history. They were never more wealthy, never more powerful. They had the most beautiful new temple. Very impressive. You read the description of how they built it. It's stunningly beautiful. Uh, they had an army second to none. They dominated all of the Mideast at that point. Uh, leaders from around the, the nations were coming to them to seek Solomon's wisdom. Uh, 300 or so wives really thought he was an awesome husband. <clears throat> and then all the girlfriends thought that was great too. And so it's kind of a weird time for us to look back. But if you look at Israel's history, you'd say it never was better in the sense that everything they hoped for was happening. And so this is what Solomon writes, or has somebody write under his name. Kohelet is the Hebrew name for it. It just means the teacher. And, and we attribute this to Solomon or somebody that was a scribe that he said, hey, this is my, these are my thoughts. At the high point of Israel's history, this is what I have to say about it. Meaningless, meaningless. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And then it goes downhill from there. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. Nothing seems to change much. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. I don't know if any of you have ever read Hemingway. 
Hemingway was a man who writes. That's Hemingway's style, right? You know, these three brief sentences, declarative sentences. He wrote a book, he wrote many novels, but his best novel, uh, according to the critics, is a book called The Sun Also Rises. It was documenting uh, fictionally the lost generation. That, that, that generation of people who came of age during World War I and then following lived a life of pretty much dissipation, uh, uh, immorality, both in the United States and in Great Britain and across Europe. And a bunch of these creatives, uh, wealthy creatives for the most part, uh, found themselves all together in Paris and, they, and their whole agenda was to entertain themselves. Hey, let's go run with the bulls in Pamplona. Let's go do this, let's go do that. Let's get in a fight, let's drink too much, let's have affairs. Uh, <clears throat> and so uh, he talked about his experience, his personal experience and his observation of his own generation, uh, likening it to this passage out of Ecclesiastes. And there's, a, there's a, a, a wistfulness to it. Why does it have to be this way? I think about that whenever I'm at Sun Valley and I'm standing in front of that marker that talks about Hemingway blowing his brains out with a shotgun. And I think, I wish you could have answered this question because you're asking the right question. Yes, the sun also rises and the sun sets. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear is full of hearing. What has been will be again, and what has been done will be done again. There's nothing, nothing new under the sun. Don't throw out that, that outfit from the 70s. It will be back. <laughs> you'll be awesome. Uh, they'll call it vintage, but you'll call it old, but you'll be stoked that somebody thinks you're looking good in it. Uh, we know that, right? There's just this endless cycle of the same things that are brought back around and again and again. Maybe in a new, fresh form, but at some point you say, yeah, it's not really new, but it's, I like it, it's fine. Out of sheer boredom, we want novelty. We want things to be new and different. You wanna sell a product, either bigger and better or new and improved on the label? Uh, nowadays, you wanna throw on it organic? Uh, I thought all water was organic, I didn't know, but you know, the fact is, if it's organic, it's gonna sell. And so, is there anything, he says, of which one can say, look, this is something new? No, it was here already, long ago. It was here before our time. No one, and he's, he's been talking about his own generation looking back, now he looks forward. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who followed them. What was the hit song of, of, of uh, 1950? What was the, the hit song of 1960? What was the hit song of 1970, of 1980, of 1990? You know, uh, what were you wearing when you were in junior high? What were you wearing when you were in high school? Who won the last Super Bowl? You know, it's all these things that go by so quickly, we think, okay, I'm on to the next thing. Can you relate to that? It's depressing, but can you relate to that? Uh, we are our own version of the lost generation. We're the wealthiest, most powerful nation on earth, and it's not going well for us. There's a reason there's an opioid crisis. It's not that everybody has a bad back. It's that everybody has a, has a bad sense of, of, of the difficulty and the complexity of navigating life. And so this is not pointing fingers at anybody. Uh, it's just saying this is human life, and it's a very stark version that, that Ecclesiastes presents to us. Um, um, but it, you have to say, yeah, he's answering a question. He's addressing an issue that, that applies to every single generation. Why is suicide among youth uh, such an epidemic? I, I was meeting with a young man, dynamic young guy. He's a basketball coach at uh, San Diego High School, and <clears throat> he's exploring faith. 
and through a, a mutual acquaintance, uh, he said, hey, could I talk to you? I said, sure, we're sitting here, spent a couple hours talking. <clears throat> and I, I, said, I said, hey, you seem like a really go for a great person. Uh, what has been important to you? And we're talking about that, and what's this hunger spiritually? And, and he talks about, you know, trying to do the right thing and good things. And he talked about, you know, in fact, when I was, I was a star basketball player, and I reached out to this younger basketball player, <clears throat> and I invested time in him and mentored him. And, and, and I, I, I said, oh, really, what was his name? And he mentioned the kid's name. And I said, wow, wow, uh, that must have hit you really hard. And he goes, well, yeah. I said, you were at his memorial service, like 800 people showing up in grief, bereft, that this 18-year-old kid who had the rest of his life in front of him had taken his life. He goes, yeah, I was there. And I go, I was the pastor, the old guy up front you were listening to, trying to make sense of that horrible situation. This is what the gospel of Jesus Christ does. It makes sense of horrible situations. It gives us hope where there's every reason not to have hope. Can you relate to that? Yes, you can. There's a gnawing sense that there's more to life, that there's a better way, right? No matter what you've accomplished, no matter who you know, what you've done, what you think you know, what you think you can do, <clears throat> there's this common restless yearning shared by all generations. Is it enough? Did I choose wisely? Should I... You know, I was talking to somebody who just moved from one awesome place to another, and they spent the last year going, gosh, did I make the right decision? They've, been, they've had a year of cognitive dissonance, second-guessing themselves on that. You know, uh, back when you used to have real stockbrokers, it was a miserable job. You know why? If they bought something that was a dog, they bought too much. If they bought something that was a runaway hit, they bought too little. Like, oh my gosh, can I ever get it right? A modern poet describes it as a long-distance loneliness rolling out over the desert floor. Isn't that a great evocative phrase for those of us who live in the great southwest basically a long distance loneliness rolling out over the desert floor if you've ever driven the stretches of the west and especially at night the beautiful sky uh, but it's silent it's quiet and it's big it goes on and on and on and it's in those moments you're really getting to become a philosopher and a poet aren't you because you start thinking about everything and that one voice on the radio talking to you as you make your way across those vast expanses uh, gets you thinking about things there's this long-distance loneliness rolling out over the desert floor, and God himself speaks into that loneliness. The only thing that can pierce the loneliness and despair that Ecclesiastes holds out to us uh, is the God of all creation and the God who is the God of all redemption, telling us that he is the answer that we seek. He is the way to the life we yearn for and know somehow that we were made for, even if we don't believe in God and discount everything to do with him. We know somehow we were made for something better. It's just out of reach and so we see Isaiah saying it this way, speaking uh, on behalf of God, as if God was saying, see, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I'm making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. I'm answering and filling that void of that long-distance loneliness rolling out over the desert floor that echoes and echoes and echoes generation to generation to generation. Uh, whether you're in the southern sky or the northern sky, Overwhelmed by those beautiful stars, you can be surrounded by a lot of lonely people, including you. This, this walk in the wilderness, these streams in the wasteland, written at the time when it could not have gotten better for Israel, is the same thing that we can relate to where we are. So yes, indeed, there's a reason that we think church has something to say in answering this universal human condition, generation to generation. And it's like this. Uh, Matthew quotes Jesus saying, I will build my church. I will build my church. This is Jesus speaking. Now, of course, the context is 
Peter has, he has answered the question, who do you think I am, by saying, you are the Lord, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah. Uh, well said, it's on that rock that I'll build my church. Whether that was the rock of that confession, uh, whether it meant Peter as, as the rock on whom that would be built, uh, the, the person like Peter who would confess Christ as, as Lord, it's, it's a debatable point. But at that point, the, the, the heart of that passage and that message is, I, Jesus, I will build my church. And in that is packed all the promises of God to Abram and, and, and to Abram and through him to Israel to bless all nations on earth. And so in creating the church, Christ calls us to participate fully in his work in the world. Our work is expressed in that Greek word, liturgy. How many of you have heard of the word liturgy? Uh, <clears throat> liturgy is, is a word that oftentimes we equate with a form of worship. You might say, oh yeah, liturgy, that's what they do in the Catholic Church. There's a lot of elements and formality, or the Anglican Church, or if you go to an Orthodox or Greek Orthodox Church. And you go, but my church doesn't have liturgy. We just have a guy get up and play guitar with a band, and somebody does a prayer, somebody does announcements, and then somebody gets up and preaches, and they say a prayer, and then they sit down, and we do that every week. Oh, you don't have a liturgy. No, 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 we, we're not one of those liturgy churches. Okay, then. If you did something different, would it kind of caught people, catch people off guard? Oh, we wouldn't do anything different, because what we're doing is the biblical way of worshiping God. Okay, then, thank you for explaining that. Liturgy is just a fancy compound word taken out of Greek culture by the early uh, church, and all it means is public service wedded to worship of God. And so when we talk about liturgy, we talk about the work of God's people is in worshiping the Lord and then forming our work out of that worship. Uh, the Benedictines are, are geniuses at reducing everything to its, its, its most efficient version, and, and, and the Benedictine motto is ora et labora, pray and work, pray and work. Pray and work. That's what we do. Whatever kind of church you go to or don't go to, all churches have a liturgy that's about somehow coming into the presence of God, trying to understand him, listen to him, connect the dots about what he's done and what he's doing, and then to go out and do their work in his name. Whether it's a Quaker church where everybody sits quietly and waits for God to speak to somebody, whether it's this wild Pentecostal, fun, charismatic moment, uh, whether it's a Catholic church with all the smells and bells that are evocative, if you've grown up in that, and make you feel like, yes, I've been in the presence of God. Whether it's a five-hour service at Mount Athos with the Greek Orthodox monks. All of it is liturgy meant to wed together this worship of God that, that allows us to participate in God's work in the world. Don't judge any of it. We can improve on all of it. But the fact is, this is what answers that issue raised uh, by Ecclesiastes. And so every church has this liturgy. And the liturgy basically comes down to this. It's Jesus saying, follow me, trust in me, learn from me, rest in me, find your life in me, find your peace in me, find your purpose in me, find your mission in me, find your way through this labyrinth of life, this wilderness, this desert in me, and you will find rest for your souls. And so our work begins by turning to the Lord, how? In repentance and in faith turning from whatever else is beguiling us and calling us to give our full allegiance to it and say, Lord, I am focusing on you first and foremost so that all things might follow from that. Seek first the kingdom of God so that everything else would fall in this proper place. It's not prioritizing God over anything else. It's just prioritizing God so you understand everything else in its proper proportion. And so uh, we learn to listen to him and obey him. Basically the same word, uh, another one of those Latin words, obedere. It means listening. Listening is a response to God called obedience. 
And so we learn to proclaim and teach and demonstrate his kingdom on earth. This is the work of God in people. And this is the work that people do who learn to love God and listen to him. So this is what we're made for. This is why the church exists. Why Jesus would say, I build my church, a community of people who are alive in me and understand what their real work is. To be present to God and in his name present to people in my name. And so <clears throat> on that day uh, when, when uh, the Holy Spirit fell on the people, Pentecost, we'll celebrate that June 9th. Uh, it, Peter gets up to explain and to interpret for them what was going on. They're blown away. All these, all these people saying, what did we just see and experience? What is this? Uh, and they're all true blue Jews gathered together. And so Peter stands up and says, let, therefore, let all Israel, as if they are all Israel, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. This is how you explain what you just heard and saw and are part of. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. The Holy Spirit cuts to our hearts, not as, as if to wound us, but to open us up to the love and the grace and the power of God. To go deep into the core of who we are. To align us with him and his purposes for us. It's overwhelming and it's completely comforting. And so Peter um, says, um, they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, he's uh, Adelphoi, brothers and sisters, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent, turn to the living God and be baptized. Die to yourself. Be raised up in life in him. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The church is, is empowered by the living presence of God through his Holy Spirit, bringing people together to come into the right heart, the right mind to understand their right and proper work. We were made to work. We were made to be stewards of all creation. It's crazy, we live in a culture where everybody's trying to get out of work. We were emulating the Greeks and the Romans, not the Israelis, right? The people of Israel knew that it's in our work that we're most like God, the God who created all creation. All whose works are good is the one that we emulate. Not, we're not trying to get out of that, we're trying to engage in that. And so he says, the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And so with many other words, he warned them. What is he warning them about? Don't miss this. Don't substitute anything for this. Don't pretend anything can meet the deep need in you except for this so that you can then meet the deep needs in the rest of creation by this. And he pleaded with them. Do you ever find yourself doing that in respectful Composed ways, pleading with the people you love. You're in a conversation, you're trying to say, this is what you need. This is the one who loves you more than anyone could possibly love you. And you, you find yourself pleading, not in a whiny kind of a voice, not in a badgering sort of a way, but you're saying, oh, Lord, you ever plead with God? Your heart is so filled with his love and his grace, and you want this so much for the people around you. And so doing that, he says, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Do you see a theme here? Generation to generation, it's all the same issue. We are the generation that is corrupted. Why? Not because we've chosen to be corrupted. We think we're actually pretty awesome. We think we're a very moral uh, generation. We believe in our culture that we are so awesomely um, uh, righteous that we, we can export it to the rest of the world, along with all the movies we make and all the TV shows we make and all the music we produce. That it's awesome. It's going to just make everything so much better for you. 
why is so much of the world, I mean, is there anything better in the world than democracy? And yet, why is so much of the world saying, I don't know, I'm going to rethink this? Why are people in our own country rethinking the power of democracy? It's because it's overloaded with so much other stuff that they can't see what it is. The freedom that we have in Christ produces a, a, a culture where people are set free. But if after a while it's so overladen with materialism and, and other kinds of things that, that are faux righteousness, it's so discouraging, people say there must be a better way. And so he's saying, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. No, no, we worship in the temple. We keep the law. You're right, you're a corrupt generation. There's nothing wrong with the temple or the law. It's you. Your heart is not right with God. Moving to a new zip code in Israel will not help you. Getting rid of the Romans will not approve the situation. Until you come right with God, it's not going to work. And so those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And what we see is the church is this movement of God's spirit among people, continuing and fulfilling his promise to Israel, not by discounting and throwing Israel to the side, but by fulfilling his promise to Israel to include all the Gentiles, to bless all the nations of the world, forming us into a redemptive community in Jesus Christ, calling us to participate in his work in the world. Not by becoming Jews, but along with Jews and Gentiles together, we're becoming alive in Christ. And so every generation needs to respond to this call to be the church. Would you agree? Every generation benefits from this. There's no deficit here. Right now we're ripping off. Our, my generation is ripping off all the generations behind me. Because we're creating so much debt to burden those generations. We've created systems that will pay off my generation at the expense of a generation behind me. What kind of legacy is that, right? But in this case, there's nothing but good that comes out of passing from one generation to another. The good things that God has entrusted to us. There's no downside to that. If I was to die in a plane crash, our kids would, would benefit from that financially. But if it all goes the way Janet and I hope and pray it goes, uh, there will be nothing for them, I guarantee that. It will all be spent out. So don't hold your breath. Get a job and don't quit it before you have another one, right? But the legacy we're giving them is this legacy. Bequeathed to them from God through us. This is what every generation needs to thrive. Hey, life would be better if I could just pay off my, my, my student loans. No, no, no. Life would be better if you come alive in Christ. And then figure out how to pay off your student loans, right? If I only had a house, if, I, if only I was married, if only I had, we had kids. If only we had cuter kids, smarter kids. And the kids might, meanwhile, saying, oh, if only I had smarter parents, <laughs> nicer parents. No, uh, every generation needs to respond to this call to be the church. And here's what it should look like. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. And here we see embedded word and sacrament. A sacrament is, is a spiritual reality made clear to our senses. This bread and this cup representing, and not just representing symbolically, but substantively, Jesus' life abiding in us. Being baptized, I'm dying to me, and I'm, I'm being born again in Christ. It's spiritual formation, seeing the power of God through his Holy Spirit shape us into the people we are becoming in him. And that becomes our missional foundation. Also, we find that we care about things we didn't care about before. This is the power of what we see here as he devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. It says, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All of whom, by the way, said, it's not me, it's the Holy Spirit doing this. I'm simply bearing witness to the Lord through his spirit. So when Peter and John walk out of the temple and the beggar says, would you give me something? And they say, silver or gold, uh, have we none? But what we have, we give you. They grab his hand, they pull him up, and he starts walking. 
They say, this is of the Lord, not from me. And so all the believers were together and had everything in common. And so we see this spiritual power released among ordinary people. Authentic community, bringing uh, people who would otherwise be at loggerheads with each other. It was a very fragmented culture. Everybody had their own point of view and their own ideology and their own little group to identify with. Does it sound familiar? But instead, they had this authentic community that was drawing them together. And in that community, there was an increasing level of personal responsibility. Uh, we live in a culture at one level with people who dominate through massive amounts of money. This, this week, a, a chrome bunny rabbit, a chrome sculpture of a bunny was auctioned off for $91 million. You think there might be something screwy with our economy. Um, and yet, at the same time, you have people who can do that, and you have people who would see themselves as perpetual free riders. I just need to game the system so it doesn't cost me anything. Somebody should take care of that. Somebody should take care of me. There's a lack of personal responsibility. When you see people come into the right heart and the right mind of Christ, what happens? Authentic community, personal responsibility, spiritual power released in places in a way you thought, I never thought I'd ever see this happen. And so they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Uh, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. This was not socialism. It was corporate social responsibility. We are the body. Who, are we, who do we need it to care for? One of the things, one of the concepts that came out of this movement was he who does not work does not eat. An interesting mix, isn't it? We'll provide everything you need so that you can learn how to work and, and, and participate and contribute to the community and bless other people. Are you ready for that? Well, I like the first part. I got to think about the second part. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. There's this internal connection and this external impact. Uh, we call that koinonia, this, this internal gathering together and fellowship, participation, sharing and contributing. External influence, the social impact from their good works and good example resulting in an attractional sort of quality. What's going on with those people? I want to know more. I think I might want to be a part of that kind of community. So this is what we see, and it's not a utopian thing at all. Immediately after reading Acts 2, 42 to 47, we start to see all the things that people are trying to do to game it, to free ride it, to co-opt it, to abuse it. You see a guy named Simon coming up to Paul going, this is awesome stuff. Can I purchase it? I've seen you pray over people and they're healed. I'd like to buy some. My name is Simon Magus. They call me the magician. And, you know, Paul rebukes him. Skiva, I love that Skiva has seven sons. Skiva uh, sees, I think, what, what's going on with the apostles, and he goes, this is so awesome. So he walks up to somebody and tries to cast a demon out of them. And the demon says, I know Peter, I know Paul, who are you? It says it beats him up and sends him naked down the street running. He and his seven sons. you got to love Skiva. Can you imagine sometime uh, you're in church and, hey, take a minute to say hi to the people around you. Hi, Steve. Skiva. Skiva? Oh, my gosh, you're the guy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I like to forget about that. You know, I've come into my right mind, though, now. I'm part of the koinonia, the fellowship. I'm receiving this gift that I'm then trying to figure out how God wants me to share with other people. And so the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. It wasn't a clever marketing campaign. It wasn't, uh, you know, some bait switch. Free money, show up, you know. And now we're going to take the offering. 
You know, it's a, it's a community that they were saying, what is going on with that community? This compelling word, this persuasive spirit. See, the church is to embody the good news of God in Christ, which is the story of God proclaimed, taught, and demonstrated by equipped and empowered, engaged people. To the degree that we come alive in this and embrace it and commit to it, lean in it, lean into it, and, and re re rely on it, uh, we become a compelling, even irresistible force in the world for people to say, I, whatever it is, I want what you, what you have. And so our work is a direct effect of the Lord we worship and to whom we bear witness. This is our liturgy shapes us. That prayer and work that engages us in a transformed life. Our mission is just who we are in Christ. To the degree that we are who we are in Christ, the mission becomes um, almost spontaneous. Yes, we make decisions and commitments. We, we have strategies and, and uh, um, infrastructure that supports it. But our mission is who we are in Christ. Do you think people in our world are hungry for that? Yes, they are. They're hungry for the church to be the church. So that some high school kid who just becomes a follower of Jesus walks into an old Safeway and, and starts hearing things he's never heard before, seeing things he's never seen before, and says, my gosh, I had no idea this is what it was. Why are my parents arguing over whether or not to come to something like this? Well, they weren't. They're arguing over something else. They missed this completely. And so the writer of Hebrews says, let's consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds now that we're in this community. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. Uh, I, I, one of my favorite passages, perhaps it's familiar to you too. It just sounds so good and, and, and friendly and warm and fuzzy, except for what I, I, I made the serious mistake of looking it up in Greek. I was like, don't ever look up words in Greek because then you have to stop seeing the... The, the, the harsh edges rubbed off in English. Uh, because that word spur on sounds like what you think it might sound like. Uh, I've never been a horse, but I've ridden many. Uh, I understand that they don't really appreciate spurs, uh, nor do they appreciate bridles and bits either. Support and accountability are essential, essential components of becoming disciples who thrive. It's about, it's about mutual collaboration, not comparison or competition. But check this out. It's, a, it's conflictual. Why is it conflictual? Because we care about one another's soul. Conflictual in that we get close enough, we get scary close to each other to say, tell me about you. What are you doing with you? Well, I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to reveal that. Why not? You might not like it. You might judge me. You might reject me. I might be embarrassed. Why? Why could you possibly be embarrassed to be you in Christ? You know that you're drawing close to Christ when nothing embarrasses you. I am me. You, there's nothing you can accuse me of because Satan already has. There's nothing that you can convict me of because the Holy Spirit already has. I have a Savior and I have a Lord and I'm free to be me. So what do you want to talk about? The church that comforts us in our pain also confronts us in our posing. And what do I mean by posing? that false self that we feel obligated to put on and to maintain. The American church has been a phenomenal force. I mean, the American, America, the greatest force in the world today at so many levels. The American church, powerful, wealthy, um, all good at one level until you realize, oh my gosh, it's a drop in the bucket of what we could do. 
We're posing. We're posing as if we're really giving, but we give out of our lifestyle, not out of our income. If my lifestyle allows it, I will participate in God's mission in the world. By giving my time, my talent, my treasure, I'll do anything you need done as long as it's convenient and it doesn't interrupt my lifestyle. And when it does, I'll let you know very politely and respectfully, I can't do it because my lifestyle intrudes on this. I'm not judging. I'm just making an observation. I'm talking about me and everybody I know. My lifestyle is my highest priority. What happens when that's the case? Uh, well, probably what the Holy Spirit does is he brings people in close enough to say, can I spur you on to good deeds? Can I spur you on? Can I, can I invite you into a conflict to talk about what you think you're going to do with that time and that money? Because that money is not yours. Well, I earned it. Yes, you did. You worked hard. Way to go. All good. Now that you've earned it and God's allowed you to have it, what do you think he wants you to do with his money? And let's move it from money. What do you think he wants, to do with his, his, he wants you to do with your sexuality? What do you think he wants you to do with your, your uh, good name and your network? What do you think he wants you to do with your opportunities to bless or to correct, to serve, perhaps suffer, perhaps die? The church, in its best moments, comforts us and confronts us, challenging our excuses for not stepping up to trust Jesus. Why? Because encouragement means strengthening your heart, and sometimes love really hurts. And so if you're in a life group, <clears throat> I, I almost say I dare you, but I would really encourage you and challenge you to get real with your life group and say, hey, let me tell you what I make every year, <clears throat> let me tell you what I give every year, and here's why there's a gap. We had a, a life group here, uh, Craig Grimm and some guys uh, were in their life group, and they, they, they said one, like three years ago, they said, you know, <clears throat> I got a hunch that maybe all of us are sort of uh, mailing it in, and we're really not doing what we could do to serve God. I know you guys so well, and I love you guys. I tell you anything. So uh, since we've talked about everything else, how about this? He said, <clears throat> write down your income, and, and and just put it on a piece of paper, we'll mix it all up, and we'll, we'll add up how much money this group makes. And, and then also write how much money you give. So we don't really know, we just know what the group does. And they were all embarrassed and appalled, and they all started laughing, going, this is pathetic, because they were close, they were brothers, right? And so they all said to each other, what do you think God would have us do? And I think the consensus was, just, let's just pretend this never happened, okay, we just move on. No, they didn't. They said, what if we gave what we were able to give, whether it's to the church or beyond? And they were giddy. And you might say, well, they were probably wealthy guys. I would tell you that they, they had to rearrange their lifestyle to make this happen. And they were set free. They had a sense of, man, lightness. I feel like, well, I don't know. And what was that? Just a euphoric one-off or no? It was an insight into the life that God wanted to create in them. Does this resonate with you? Because here's what it looks like in practice. The guy who says, the woman who says, look, I, I've got five hours and five bucks. I'm trying to live my life in a way that I can really serve Christ. I've only got five hours and five bucks. The person next to him goes, oh my gosh, thanks for sharing that. Weird thing, I've got 50, 50 hours and 500,000 bucks. Let's put our money and time together and see what we can come up with. Because now we have 55 hours and 500,000 and five dollars to work with. You see the mutuality in that? Nobody's comparing or, or contrasting or, or, or anything. They're just saying, what if we put what we are able to put together together? That's what the early church did. It wasn't socialism. It was community saying, what do you think God is calling us to do and be? What could that money and that time accomplish? This is not a guilt trip on you. This is simply saying, God is inviting us into a world that turns Ecclesiastes upside down. 
Because what's new is when people start walking with Jesus. What's new is when people start feeling renewed from the inside out. What's new is when people start saying, uh, I'm a good steward of my money, but you know what? I'm here to use it to serve God's purposes. I'll be smart how I do it. I'll be, I'll be discerning, but <clears throat> uh, where do we start? The power of this is inherently disruptive and conflictual, but what does it do? It glorifies God and blesses people, especially the people who are experiencing this up close and personal. And so the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. We are shaped by perpetual gratitude for God's goodness. Therefore, we joyfully profess Jesus as Savior and Lord. And this makes us humble and teachable and confident and resourceful. We no longer are shamed by our sin. We're so impressed with God's grace, we say, man, I'm struggling with this sin. But I know that God is meeting me here. Would you pray for me? And all of a sudden, your sin doesn't become this hidden shame. It becomes this place where people go, hey, I'm with you. What can we do? You're not alone. This is what accountability and, 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 and uh, support looks like. We hold each other close. It makes us alive in Christ. It connects our heart to his and to one another's. And praising God becomes a source of our power and love. Why? Because paying attention to his glory and his goodness over all else in the midst of everything is the most effective way to navigate adversity and opportunity. There's no shame in saying, I feel like killing myself. The shame would be killing yourself. The shame would be, I had these brothers, had I just said to them, uh, everything is awesome, fine, how about you? When I should have said, I feel so depressed and so discouraged and such, like such a failure, I hate to even say it because it's embarrassing to be me. What do you think they would do? Go, man, glad you mentioned that, out, you go, get out. No, they would probably start crying. They'd probably lean in close, they'd probably be going, I don't know what quite to say, but man, you too, me too. Or they grab a hand. They go, man, can I pray for you? Can I hug you? Can I, can I tell you that uh, I am moved deeply by what you just shared that you would trust me that much? I can only imagine what you're going through. Uh, it just makes me want to cry thinking about it, right? You think, wow, that would be a breakthrough. Why does revival happen? When revival happens historically, it's people not just confessing their sins. It's people being real about what they're living. And they're, every time God meets people individually and as a, as a, as a, a um, community when that happens, and so don't forget to do good and to share with others for such sacrifice God is pleased with. Yes, uh, we want to fulfill the great commandment to love God and love people, but we do it by being people who are re re learning to receive um, uh, God's love and the love of other people. And so have confidence, uh, the writer of Hebrews says, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. What is this authority that, that, that we're supposed to submit to? It's them being entrusted with this message. God is for you. God is with you. God has what you need. God is not embarrassed by anything you do or you are or you think. And God wants you to know how much he loves you and wants to come close to, to help heal you and form you into the person he's redeeming you to be. Yeah, but I did that last year. Now I hear my gear and back with same issues. All right. Uh, eternity. Remember that. He lives in eternity. For him, it's nothing you are everything. So good leadership becomes essential. Why? Because leadership says, I've been entrusted with this message of hope. And sometimes I deliver it through comforting words, and sometimes it's through words that feel like I'm confronting you. In any case, it means I care about you deeply. Do you have anybody doing that for you? 
I'm telling you, that's a great gift. When I experience it, that is such a gift to me. It humbles me, it moves me. Sometimes it moves me to tears, sometimes it makes me giggle, you know, because I'm like, wow, that's awesome, thank you. And so do this so that their work, the writer says of Hebrews, do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. I don't need your message of hope. I don't need your interest in my situation. I don't need you asking me nosy questions about how I'm doing with God or what I'm doing with my life. Your concern for me is annoying me, so please stop it. Or stop trying to call me back to God. Or stop trying to invoke his authority in this situation. You see, that is what burdens leaders. The leader of the life group. The small group leader in, in a youth setting. The Sunday school teacher. A pastor. A trustee. Pick anybody. They're trying to simply bring God's goodness to you. And if you say, I don't need it, and I resent the fact that you think I need it. What we do is we bury ourselves in Ecclesiastes. And so let love, let's love one another as Christ loves us. Let's raise up leaders who will lead in love. Let's love those leaders as they lead. Who wouldn't want to be a leader in a church like that? Who wouldn't want to be involved in a church like that? Uh, let me get uh, more personal on this. I, I have to say, I mean, I love you. I, I was at that prayer thing on Wednesday night. I just felt so much love and support. And I felt like, wow, this is who we are at our best. And we're gathering to uh, pray for each other and to pray for our church. There's groups of people spread out all over the church campus. We've done this on a number of occasions. But it just reminded me again how precious this is, that, that we, and powerful it is, that we gathered. Uh, and and uh, it's a very simple liturgy, you know. Let's just pray, uh, just pray. And then let's, let's just go around the campus and, and, and touch buildings and imagine people in those buildings and pray for everything that goes on in the church. That's an expression of love, and I, I feel that love from you, and I feel that support from you, and I want everybody in our church to feel that love and support from one another. And I, I count it a great privilege and honor to be able to be in a community like that, to serve with people like you. And so what, what, anything that's in you that, is, is, that you're thinking, uh, if, I, if they only knew who I really am, they wouldn't be so excited about me. Just let go of that, because the fact is the fact is that you are loved by God. You become a conduit for his love. You are powerful in his love. You are persuasive in his love. There's no greater gift you can give to anybody, starting with your, your spouse, your kids, your colleagues, your brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we are rooted in Christ because of his love, shed on the cross with his own blood and giving his own life. Not so that we could be in perpetual debt to him, so that he could remove the perpetual debt that keeps us away from him. And so he's been pruning us for a season. Why? Because he loves us. What, what a season of pruning represents, in my mind, is a season of promise and hope that God is preparing us for something uh, good. He's leading us into our next chapter of growth and impact. It's a beautiful journey because we are on it together in Christ. Let's go there together, right? Because we are the church. We are the church. We're the hope of every generation because we, in Christ, are his church. So Lord Jesus, that's my prayer for me, for my family, for my brothers and sisters here, that we could be your church. The church that you are building through your Holy Spirit on the foundation of your word and your work. Thank you for the privilege of being part of that work and being able to participate fully in it. 
Meet each one of us, Lord, where we need to be met by you. Open us up so that, Lord, we can meet one another in that place as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Steve. If you have your bulletins, you can take out your prayer and connection cards as the ushers come forward. We're going to move into a time of tithes and offerings. This is where those who call the Holy Community Church their home, is this is our opportunity to give back out of the blessings that we've been given. We're called to be this blessing in this community to bring the light of the gospel where we work, live, and play. So let's continue our time of worship with song and giving.
For the Lord is here and the Lord is with you. And when you leave, he goes with you. Uh, if you have never invited him into your life, if you've never committed yourself to walk with him, do that before you leave today. If you are here discouraged and you know him and believe in him, but you're discouraged, know that he loves you and will meet you at that place of discouragement or doubt or despair because that's where he wants to meet you so he can help you grow. And don't let that be alone for you. Let that be in community with others. So if we can help you get into a life group, if we can help you get connected to other people, we really want to do that as well. So now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord who loves you more than you can ask or even imagine give you everything you need to walk in newness and fullness of life with him, one day at a time, both now and forevermore. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.